Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Music is always evolving and mutating and modifying itself. You start with something, and then maybe enough people will agree on a certain direction for this new sound to become a full-fledged new subgenre. And in time, sub-subgenres may spring from that offshoot, multiplying things even more. Now, think about it. In the 1950s, you had rock, pop, country, and R&B. Most everything that was released back then could be classified under one of those four headings. Today, though, Spotify has organized things into nearly 2,000 different categories. There's music with names like Dark Psytrance, something called Stomp and Flutter. You might be into Vapor Soul or Fussball, Gymcore or Cat Step footwork or sleaze rock seriously these are all actual spotify genre classifications now let's circle back to the alt rock of the early 2000s after a decade of things staying fairly close to a certain set of specs alt rock began to mutate again now yes guitars were still important but not essential and there were certain shifts in attitude and outlook created by world-shaking global events because, as we've learned, the sound of an era's music is always just a little downstream from what's happening in society at large. Let's deconstruct this concept a little further. This is Alt-Rock in the Aughts, Part 4. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Hi there, I'm Alan Cross, and this is Chapter 4 of our look at Alt-Rock in the first decade of the 21st century, or, as we're calling them, the aughts. So far, we've looked at how indie music injected new life into a morbid rock scene. And we also recounted how major legacy groups from the 90s and before roared back by the middle of the decade to once again make rock, especially of the alternative variety, front and center once again. In other words, they helped make rock rock again. It was all very healthy. And when a segment of the music universe is this healthy, it seeks to stay healthy by reproducing new related sounds. And there was a lot of that going on through the aughts. But let me back up for just a second, because if we're going to understand what happened, we need to go back to the late 70s and the early 80s for some historical context. Now, the whole concept of alternative music was born out of the punk rock explosion of the middle 1970s. Punk and its angry guitars began a variety of post-punk sounds. This music wasn't punk. But you could tell by listening to it that something like punk must have happened. At the same time, though, it rode off in all directions at once. Now, back then, it wasn't a certain sound that bound alternative music together. It was an attitude. And that attitude was, for lack of a better description, anything goes. If it was left of center, experimental, or even just plain disagreeable or incompatible with whatever was happening with mainstream rock, it was all dumped into the alternative bucket. Now, again, we need to remember that back then, alternative rock and mainstream rock were distinct and separate universes. There was the occasional crossover, but for the most part, mainstream rockers stayed in their lane and the alt-rockers stayed in theirs. It was all very tribal and going back and forth between these two tribes was, um, well, let's just say it was discouraged by both sides. So this meant that the alt-rock world contained this vast variety of sounds all developing on their own. Back then, this mm -hmm. 
was considered to be every bit as alternative as this. Gimme, gimme, gimme! I need some more! Gimme, gimme, gimme! Don't ask what for! One, two, three, four! And is this. In other words, the sonic palette of alternative music back in the late 70s and through the 80s was very, very wide, very, very deep, and very varied. But then came the 1990s. Grunge was so big and so popular that it had the effect of consolidating and codifying alt-rock as almost exclusively guitar-based. The sonic scope of alt-rock in the 90s narrowed. Now, there were exceptions, of course. Think, uh, you know, Tori Amos and Bjork and the Beastie Boys and a few others. But if you look back at the decade of the 90s, alt-rock was primarily about electric guitars. This was both good and bad. Good in the sense that these sounds allowed the alt-rock attitude to explode all over the world, thanks to groups like, you know, Nirvana and Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and Alice in Chains and Smashing Pumpkins and Stone Temple Pilots and so on. But this was bad in the sense that the music industry and a lot of music fans ended up chasing those sounds far, far more than others. Now, that was great for a while, but in the end, this resulted in a rapid burndown. There was only so many good artists who could play in this particular sandbox. Things got more and more diluted and derivative, and by the end of the decade, alt-rock and rock in general was in big trouble, as we've already discussed, so I won't belabor that point again. What the aughts brought back was a return of alt-rock to what it was like back in the 80s. What it did was acknowledge this new generation's more sensitive side. And a lot of it began with this thing called emo. As for now, we're gonna hear the saddest songs And sit alone and wonder How you're making out And as for me that's Dashboard Confessional from their 2001 album, The Places You Have Come to Fear the Most. It's a single entitled Screaming Infidelities, and it's a great example of early aughts emo. Now, a bit of background. Emo is an offshoot of a particular type of hardcore punk that originated in the Washington, D.C. area in the middle 80s. Its original name was Emotional Hardcore, or Emocore for short, or just plain emo. The music was loud and often screamy, but at its heart... It was grounded in sensitivity and anxiety and shyness and heavy emotion in general. Emo culture gestated underground through the 80s and 90s, resulting in the creation of the stereotypical emo kid with his or her black hair, the long bangs, the black clothes, the glasses with the thick rims. There were also some stigmas associated with being branded emo, depression and self-harm being just two of them. Emo stayed in its own corner of the alternative universe until after the traumatic events of 9-11, for the following several years, emo bands exploded in popularity. Not all bands accepted the label, but there's no arguing that emo was everywhere in the early aughts. Dashboard Confessional, Jimmy Eat World, Fallout Boy, Saves the Day, Taking Back Sunday, Simple Plan, AFI, Plain White Tees, Red Jumpsuit Apparatus, Paramore. All of them, for better or for worse, were clumped into the emo category. And they all had major success between the summer of 2002 and the rest of the decade. In fact, at one point... It seriously seemed as if the whole world was going emo. Break, break. 
My Chemical Romance with Welcome to the Black Parade from 2006, right at the height of the emo explosion of the aughts. The emo thing got so big that bits of it cleaved off to form new subgenres. There was emo pop, same grounding and sensitive matters, but with more pop hooks and singable melodies. This is where Fall Out Boy and Panic at the Disco would end up. There was emo rap, which is just like it sounds, a combination of emo and hip-hop. It started popping up at the end of the decade. And if you wanted to get really deep, there were all the regional variations from North Carolina emo to Midwest emo to Aussie emo. And then there was screamo, a darker, louder, even more intense form of emo. Screamo bands weren't afraid of politics. They preferred old Joy Division and Smith records over Weezer and Fugazi. And it seems to have started in San Diego as early as 1991. Groups like The Used, The Refused, Hawthorne Heights, Under Oath, and At The Drive-In all contributed to the evolution of Screamo. But it was bands like Census Fail, Story of the Year, and a couple of Canadian bands that really pushed Screamo forward. One was Silverstein, a group from Burlington, Ontario, who were formed in 2000. And the other was Alexis on Fire, which was born down the highway in St. Catharines. Their first album went gold in Canada. Their second went platinum. Their third debuted at number one on the national album charts and also went platinum. And their fourth also hit number one. By this time, Alexis on Fire had a strong fan base in the U.S., Australia, and the U.K. In fact, if you had to name the biggest screamo band of all time, I don't think you could really go wrong with Alexis on Fire. Alexis on Fire from their 2006 album Crisis with Boiled Frogs, an example of the emo offshoot called Screamo. But emo and Screamo weren't the only new alt-rock genres to emerge in the aughts. We'll look at a few more next. As it had through the 80s and 90s, alt-rock continued to evolve in multiple directions at once throughout the aughts. And like I said back at the beginning, the sounds of alt-rock began to more resemble what we saw in the 80s in respect to the diversity of sounds. There was less emphasis on having to be a full-on guitar band, at least in the way alt-rock had come to be defined in the 90s. Take MGMT, for example. They were formed in 2002 in Middletown, Connecticut by Andrew Van Wingarden and Ben Goldwasser. They had an indie pop sound sprinkled with various bits of psychedelia. It seemed all very experimental, similar to the attitude of some of the alt-rock bands had maybe 20 years earlier. There were bits of Bowie and the Beatles in what they did. You could also hear elements of the Beach Boys and Pink Floyd. But they also fed off with what happened and what was happening with indie rock, so they didn't sound retro at all. This definitely was new, but also somehow comfortably familiar. MGMT wasn't the only band willing to try something new. Others were willing to reach back into the 80s or even the 70s for influences. And a few of these acts became wrapped up in something called the New Wave Revival, or even, and this is a bit silly, the New New Wave. Now, you could tell by listening that these artists grew up listening to groups like Duran Duran, Joy Division, The Cure, New Order, Pixies, The Police, and U2. But at the same time, they were younger and put their own spin on things. And here is where we encounter the idea of a demographic shift again. The artists setting the agenda for the middle odds and forward were children of the 80s and 90s. 
millennials making music for other millennials. Take Modest Mouse, for example. Although the band had been around since 1992, they really didn't come into their own until the middle of the aughts. They'd been a critical success, but it wasn't until they got to their fourth album that things really came together. If you were into music in the spring of 2004, you might remember how this song stood out amongst records by Green Day and U2 and Linkin Park. It was strange and quirky and really didn't rely on a fuzzy guitar tuned down low. This sounded more like something the Talking Heads might perform at CBGB in 1979. The New Wave Revival, the New New Wave, gathered quite a bit of attention throughout the middle of the aughts. If you want to make a pile of the groups involved, you need to look at The Rapture, The Bravery, Franz Ferdinand, Block Party, Kaiser Chiefs, The Killers, and we can go deeper. Phoenix, Passion Pits, The Ting Tings, all had more than a tinge of 80s alt-rock to what they did. Take the case of Interpol. They had come together in New York in 1997 and were immediately compared to bands who had been around 20 years earlier, Joy Division, Television, even The Doors and Lou Reed. Their debut record, Turn On The Bright Lights, came out in 2002, and it had an immediate influence on like-minded groups. There's a little Interpol in everyone, from The Killers to The XX. Like the 80s, the aughts alt-rock scene had its dancey electronic elements. 25 years earlier, long before grunge guitars took over, alternative kids danced to keyboard-based bands like Depeche Mode, New Order, OMD, Duran Duran, The Human League, Erasure, Eurythmics, and so many others. We saw a revival of that kind of attitude in the aughts as an outgrowth of late 90s trends towards electronica. The Prodigy and the Chemical Brothers were still with us, so was Fatboy Slim. But now we also had... LCD sound system, air, gold frap. You could also throw in gorillas into this mix if you want. Maybe even Outkast and Gnarls Barkley. They all had alt-rock hits in the aughts. These acts blended alt-rock sensibilities with a million different types of dance influences, from old-school raves to disco to house to R&B to certain elements of hip-hop. And one of the best examples of what I'm talking about is Daft Punk. Daft Punk and Robot Rock from 2005. And by this time, things were definitely segmenting, separated, and fragmenting again. In the 90s, grunge held from the center. In the aughts, that center did not hold, and alt-rock was off trying different things again, just like it had way back in the 80s. And that segmenting, separating, and fragmenting would only pick up speed by the end of the decade. Back with that in a moment. Before we continue with a look at the changing sound of alt-rock in the late aughts, we need to acknowledge yet another demographic shift and another change in the cycle of music. Generation Y, millennials, had started to move out of their teen pop years, but they were followed by Generation Z, the generation that began to be born in the middle 1990s. This is a huge cohort of people, and their influence on the music marketplace was starting to be felt in the late aughts. As we saw, 
Rock had been on top for years, maybe, well, 2004 to 2008. But then the cycle began to turn, and the focus once again became on teen pop. In fact, pop in general was back in vogue, and in a big, big way. We had Lady Gaga, Black Eyed Peas, Justin Bieber, Rihanna, Taylor Swift, Beyonce. In one sense, this was a bit odd, given the horrible financial crisis of 2008 and 2009, Usually uncertain times don't manifest themselves in fluffy pop music, but this time it did. Maybe this music was a distraction. Maybe the bad stuff happening in the economy was pushed aside because so many people had discovered social media and were deep into Facebook and Twitter and so on. Or maybe it was the effect of TV shows like all the idol programs. Whatever the case, rock was pushed aside, once again on the descendant at the end of the odds in terms of its position and power driving society forward. Now, this is not to say that rock was dead or dying. It is just this music cycle that we've discussed over and over again. And this isn't necessarily a bad thing because being in the down part of a cycle can lead to a lot of innovation. Because when there's uncertainty, there's more willingness to try something, anything new. So, uh, like what? Well, how about banjos? Those haven't been tried much in alt-rock. Could the industry maybe sell a form of folk and bluegrass-influenced music to the alt-rock crowd? I don't know. Maybe. Let's try. I mean, how could it hurt? But it was not your fault but mine And it was your heart on the line I really it up this time Deny my dear Deny my dear Little Lion Man the first thing we heard from Mumford & Sons, the first single from their debut album, Sigh No More, which was released in October 2009. Their success, and they had a lot of it, set the stage for a lot of acoustic-based, or at least acoustic-tinge alt-rock in the second decade of the 21st century. But uh, we'll save that for another series. Before we finish up episode four on our history of alt-rock and the odds, we should make mention of the topic of reunions. By the first decade of the 21st century, alt-rock had been around long enough that big acts had broken up and been enticed to reunite. So let's just make a quick list here. Jane's Addiction, The Pixies, Smashing Pumpkins, The Lemonheads, Rage Against the Machine, My Bloody Valentine, Blink-182, Garbage, Jesus and Mary Chain, The Verve, again, and Stone Temple Pilots a couple of times. These reunions injected some life into the scene, albeit temporary life. And it brought old-time fans back into the fold who may have drifted away for whatever reason. On the final episode of our look at the aughts, we will address the role of technology. This cannot be understated, and the material that we will discuss on the next program will help explain why things are the way they are today. Get podcasts of the show through Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your on-demand audio. There are many, many, many podcasts available, so you will be binging a lot for quite some time. Rate, review, and if you can, recommend. That helps us a lot. My website is a ajournalofmusicalthings.com. It's updated every day. You should get the newsletter. It comes out every day as well. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Let's connect somehow. Technical production for all this is by Rob Johnston. See you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.